plenty to reflect on after the first weekend of the Rugby Championship. Here to talk about it, we have a full house with me, Nick, Brendan, Chris, and former Australia captain, James Horwell. Chris and Brendan, you're back with me again. Great to see you. We may get Nick drop in. Um, we'll have to see. He's just having some tech issues. And we are with former Australia captain, James Horwell. How are you doing, James? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. So you're in Brisbane, right? Yes, back in Oz, back in the in the mother country, or I guess pe- technically the UK is probably the mother country for <laughs> for us down here in Australia. So back uh, back down under. So yeah, been moved back from the UK about twelve months ago, and just got back from a recent month long stint back in the UK, which was which was nice. Uh, you turned on the nice weather for me. It felt like home. <laughs> But you yeah. were you weren't here for the forty degree heat wave, were you? you missed that? No, I, I was over that side of the world, but I, I tactically made a trip to uh, to Sardinia to get a bit of Euro sun. So um, near the beach wasn't too bad. I suppose you're used to forty degree heat down in Oz <laughs> anyway, so that's not that's nothing too uh, exceptional for you. And you were over there graduating, or certainly that was part of the trip, right, from Cambridge. Yes, that's correct. So graduated, I finished last year, finished my MBA, but obviously COVID impacted sort of the early to mid part of 2021. So they weren't allowing graduation in person. And as you probably know, it's quite a, it's quite a special occasion, the, the graduation ceremony. So I wanted, you only get to do it once. So I'd rather do it in person. And so I'd, I just delayed it a year and graduated uh, this year in July when, um, when you could have all guests and it was sort of no, no restrictions, which was nice. Special day. It was. It was really nice, actually. Really good. I had my uh, my my family across, so my wife and two daughters. So it was nice to spend with them. My youngest misbehaved in Senate House, so she had to get kicked out until I came on. So that was uh, that was fun. But um, my my eldest my eldest uh, was was a very good. She sat in the front row and didn't make didn't say a word. So uh, which was very good of her. I was uh, was slightly nervous about her sitting there on her own while Mum dealt with uh, with the youngest outside kicking off because she didn't want to be held you know sat still for for longer than five minutes is there uh you obviously get briefed with the cambridge graduation process about exactly what you need to do when you need to move have they brought back the you present your hand and they like they clasp your hand and then say stuff yeah yeah, yeah they it's brought, all that, they that, that back that and the 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 holding of the finger of the yeah. um i'm gonna get the name i can't even remember the name of the 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 delegate of your college you hold their finger, they say something in Latin and have no one and then you get each get caught up and do the sort of present your hands and they clasp the hands and I guess accept you into the university essentially. How did the nerves compare to a 2013 <laughs> British Lions test? <laughs> uh, it was all right, actually. I mean, I was probably just, I, I was a bit later in the, uh, in the, in the congregation. We were sort of towards the back end. So I saw everyone else do it first. So I was like, yeah, I think I've got this. Um, <laughs> I would have been a bit nervous that I'd have been first cab off the rank. Yeah, exactly. You sort of set, set the tone for the day. And exactly, your qualification is from the business school. Is that right? Yes. And yeah. are you are you in property? No, no, no. I um I work back here for our um. We've got a, a family firm, so we um we're an automotive accessories manufacturer. Is basically in in we make we make products for cars for the for the. OEMs for the vehicle manufacturers. So we're like a tier one supplier to most of the major motor companies um, in the world. So that's 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 what we're doing here now and um, headquartered back here in Brisbane, hence why I decided to, to move back, back home to be a bit closer to a few things here. And what's the plan with the qualification? What are you going to do with that? 
Uh, that's a good question. Uh, look, I'm, I'm sort of exploring a few things, looking at a few different things in sport as well. So, um, you know, the family thing's here for a little bit and we'll see how that pans out. It's obviously been a bit of a challenge the last 12 to 18 months with COVID. And, you know, everyone knows about the supply chain issues and all that sort of stuff that's going on in the world, particularly with automobiles. So uh, there's been some challenges, which has been some good learnings. It's been, it's been a tough time, but hopefully we can get to the back end soon. But yeah, as, a, as an overall, I'm, I'm not overly sure, but I'm sort of exploring some options in sort of sports administration and governance okay. um, a little bit, which, which I find quite interesting. No, that's really Brett cool. Bosper, James. <laughs> I do know Brett. Brett's a Brett's a good Australian. He's um, so yeah. Look, it's uh, it's interesting to talk. There's a lot of people. It's a, it's a very interesting space, and um, it's something that I um, yeah. I guess I, I, I explored a little bit during my MBA. So I did my my dissertation on private equity investments in in sports. So my my I guess my thesis was on that. So that was uh, that was quite interesting to explore during the during the course of my uh, my degree. In terms of rugby, obviously retired back in 2018, played the varsity game in 2019. Are you still playing or involved in rugby and Oz no. in some form? No, not in a formal capacity. I'm definitely not playing. That varsity <laughs> game, that 2019 varsity was the last game I played. Um, okay. No, actually, so that's a lie. I played a, um, I played a, a fundraiser for the Tongan Earthquakes here for the, the classic, classic vintage Reds versus the Tongan All-Star team back in sort of just after that Tongan um, earthquake appeal where we, we were able to raise about 120,000 Australian wow. dollars for that game. So we had, we had a lot of the old boys turn out. So I uh, that was the last game I played, which wasn't a proper game, but it uh, I was certainly hurting when you're playing. A, I think the Tongan boys took it a lot more seriously than us uh, oh, old really? Reds boys. So there was, <laughs> there was a few big shots and a few... Uh... On, on this subject, James, tell me, if there was another charity game next week, and Eddie Jones was hooker on the opposition, how quickly would you sign up for um, um, a starting position? I don't know. To be honest, me and Eddie actually got on all right, but I think uh, there'd be a few, there'd be a few, uh, I think there'd be a few boys that beat me to it. I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd get a spot. <laughs> Some of the older boys, but yeah, no, to be honest, Eddie and I got along really well. Um, I, you know, uh, one of the few of his time in Australian rugby that I, you know, I, I enjoyed my time with Eddie. Um, he seemed to treat me well, and I, I you know, I, I quite uh, I, I caught up with him whenever he used to come down to Queens and see some of the England boys. So, yeah, he only, I only had him for a year at the Reds. I wasn't, I didn't have him at the Wallabies. So, um, uh, but yeah, he he was always very good to me. Yeah, I, I got along quite well with him. So I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, there's a, there's a few other boys that have probably got some different stories. <laughs> well look it sounds like you've got plenty going on and congratulations with the graduation again and obviously wishing you all the best with all your automotive projects i know you're not involved in rugby or so much involved in rugby quite so much but we're here to talk about that today i want to start with south africa new zealand and nick has joined us <laughs> on an iphone i've done so that's right yeah i'm afraid well, i'm logically inept <laughs> of getting <laughs> you just say how fantastic it is to have Bill Gates here. <laughs> Thank you. So well, welcome back. Welcome back, Nick. I'm going to bring you in straight away. Um, we'll start with South Africa, New Zealand. And New Zealand have obviously lost an unprecedented five out of their past six matches. We'll get to that in a second. Now, we spoke about how certainly in the first two tests of the summer against Wales, South Africa were unconvincing and they were more so in the third test. But for you, Nick, was this their best performance of the summer so far? Yes, it was. But it's not entirely surprising because I think that they they raised their game as they need to, or, almost. And they were probably a bit 
a bit rusty um, going into the Wales uh, series. But the thing about South Africa that's extraordinary is how they've transformed since 2016 when they were down and out. Um, they lost to Italy. They lost to everybody, almost Wales, England, New Zealand twice, Argentina. And 2017 wasn't all that much uh, better. There were improvements. But since Erasmus took over and he and Jack Nienaba, who's obviously succeeded him as head coach, they've gone back to their DNA. And their DNA is just extraordinarily uh, physical, efficient. And the side that they uh, put out against uh, New Zealand had, I'm pretty sure, 16 of their World Cup 23 in it. So the continuity from the World Cup until now has been uh, extraordinary, really. Uh, You've got the bomb squad coming off the bench again and taking the game out. Obviously, Marks had a fantastic game on his 50th cap, but it's just the way in which they are so familiar, all their patterns. They have the best kick chase game in the world by a long street. But New Zealand couldn't deal with the pressure that they exerted. And uh, they were eventually, you know, they got the last minute try, which gave them probably the right emphasis on the scoreboard for the dominance that they'd had in the game. And um, they've got to be, you know, I mean, I know that uh, David Flatman's already been on this podcast and flagged them up as his likely winners in uh, 2023. But um, they're going to take some, some beating. And when, when Flats was on, what he did say was that uh, they are his favourites because they are absolutely sure of the brand of rugby that they play. James, obviously, you've been in an international dressing room many times with many different sort of Australian outfits. How important is that discussion of identity? Because you're essentially leading towards a, a brand of rugby, a direction of rugby that you want to play. And South Africa seem to know what their blueprint is and they don't really change that for anyone. Yeah, I think it's 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 an it's an important part of what you know a lot of successful teams do, purely because it, you know, you can do all this training and practice all these certain things, but under fatigue, it sort of comes down to what what is sort of ingrained in you. And if you have that identity and it's really clear and everyone understands what we do, it's not not that it's an autopilot, but it's an understanding. Okay, this is how we play, and so when when our backs are against the wall or things aren't going well, which always happens in every game and particularly test matches, you understand this is what we need to do and this is how we do it, and we just stick to it and you build confidence that way. And I think the good teams do it really well. And I think you know we've touched on it. South Africa, you know, have gone back to sort of almost maybe not as blunt as what they they used to be. You know, I used to I used the reference of like the bulls of sort of the you know, 2007s, 8s and 9s, the Bulls, you know, um, provincial side when they were, were basically the South African. They were just, you knew what they were going to do, but they just, we, we do it better than anyone else. So if you can stop us, good luck. But if not, we're coming at you, you know exactly what's going to happen, second phase, third phase. And it's good. it was almost, you speak to guys that were part of that environment. They were like, you know, our mantra was, we, we just, we do it, but we do it better than anyone else can do it. And in, in sort of a, a very sort of bastardized terminology. So I think that identity, if you understand what that is, it, it goes a long way for, for players getting confidence in the group. And then also as injuries and guys chop and change, it's much easier for guys to come in and out of, of teams that 
I understand. I mean, in the Premiership in the UK, Exeter is a perfect example of that. Saracens as well were too successful there. You know, they've got a blueprint and identity of how they play. And when guys chop in and out, it's really simple. They play the same way and everyone buys into that. Does, yeah. does it strike you, James, that um, a similar argument can be made for Ireland at the moment, that their yeah. understanding of what they are is really beginning to pay dividends for them? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, you know... It's understanding of, you know, and I think good teams understand that there, there is limitations in what they can do and how they play. And they're not trying to be something that they're not. And I think teams can get caught up sometimes they're like, oh, we have to play a certain way, you know, particularly when the All Blacks were being obviously in that really successful period. You know, there were a lot of teams like, well, we've got to play like the All Blacks because that's how they're the most successful. We've got to be like them when it that almost has a counterintuitive effect that's sort of saying, well, you know, we're not the All Blacks. We don't have the talent. You find teams like South Africa have done, like Ireland, they go, this is what we are good at. Now let's be better at this than anyone else in the world. And we're really clear on how we play. And I think the teams that do that, you know, Ireland, you know, at the moment, South Africa, they go, they go through a little dips, but obviously in the last World Cup, they were really clear, you know, the brutal aggression, physicality, that gets over the top of people and, you know, Ireland, the clinical set piece plays the way that they play around the ruck. And, you know, it does rely on some key players, that, that's for sure. But I think the ability to interchange in and out in the modern game is really important. So this question of identity is very interesting. Obviously, flip it and we go to an All Blacks team whose identity is probably being questioned right now more than ever. Now, the All Blacks try to play an expansive brand of rugby. We know that. But that's obviously, especially when you've got a runner like Bowden Barrett at 10, it's dependent on front football. Uh, and we've spoken on this podcast about New Zealand's issues being a lack of power in the type five. James, do you think that is their biggest issue? I know the expansive rugby, they may be looking a bit stifled in attack, but that obviously starts with your pack and the ball that the pack can get you. Yeah, look, I think it's a, it's a valid point. I think it's something that New Zealand has probably never really got the appreciation that they used to have. I mean, like, obviously, we, we sit here, we're talking about South Africa, massive pack, big guys running over the top of you. Whenever you, as you just referred to, whenever you talk talking New Zealand, it's always about the back players, the back line, the centres, the wingers that are doing this. But you go through those sort of successful period of the All Blacks, they always got more than parity at set piece. Their line-out was probably the most efficient in world rugby. Their more defence, they never, very rarely, if not, I, I don't know the stats, but very rarely ever got a try scored against them from a, from a driving mall. So that when they were able to negate teams that way and then they were able to give you front football but be really clear on how they play and they played differently to other teams but they were a bit more mobile in the back, particularly the back five, not so much the front row, but using hookers on the wing where they, they sort of developed that sort of, you know, you know one three three one sort of set up in the, in the midfield where you got pods and you got the two sort of flankers or a hooker on the wing with Dane Coles. They played the way that suited their personnel and they did that better than everyone. Now they're sort of, I think they don't have the continuity of players that they've, they've once had. So they don't have, you know, you go through that again, that successful period. They got a lot of guys that understood exactly where they were, a lot of core from the Crusaders outfit, particularly in that type five. So they all understood how they played. And I think it's, um, you know, they're, they're going through a dip at the moment in terms of performance and, you know, it's, you know, New Zealand losing is, you know, back in New Zealand, it's not a fun place to be because they expect you to win. And I think they've been so used to winning for so long, pretty much anything, everything since, you know, basically 2011. For the last 11 years, they've probably been the number one team in the world. I'm, I'm not sure if that's official in the rankings, probably by 2019, they've pretty much won everything they can get their hands on. 
And are we seeing a point where if you recognise that they don't quite have that power up front right now, they have to rebrand slightly since they're not able to play that expansive rugby that's dependent on them being on the front foot? Yeah, look, I think they want to stick to how they play as a as a, as a nation because that, that's what that makes them who they are. But I think you've got to just work out ways to, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. So maybe that their their set piece is not functioning as well or their, their forward runners are not getting the dominance that they used to. So maybe they need to shift the point of attack. You know, something that I think Ireland did well in that series was the footwork of their of their forward runners coming off nine to just get and get into that space and not have to sort of use the, the brute force of say South Africa. So I think there's probably some soul searching going on in New Zealand and, you know, they're pretty quick to, to kick them when they're down as well. The, the Kiwis, you know, they're not, when they're not going too well, there's um everyone's piling in. There's obviously a lot of pressure on the coach. They've changed the coaching staff, but not the head coach. So, you know, this, this game this weekend is going to be huge for Ian Foster. Um, you know, I think there's patience is not something that the Kiwi rugby public has. And I think as a game in, in New Zealand, it's probably not where everyone in the, I guess, the Northern Hemisphere thinks that rugby should be in New Zealand, which is sort of like it's the greatest thing. And I think, you know, it is struggling. The provincial game struggling. There's not a lot of money. COVID's hit them very hard. Um, and now, the, you know, they, they always got away with it because the All Blacks won. And that was the, their whole model is designed for the All Blacks to win. If the World Blacks don't win, they get they, there's a lot of questions throughout the throughout the country. It's like, well, why are we doing all this stuff to help the All Blacks win if they're not going to win? So it's um yeah, it's an interesting time to be a, a Kiwi rugby supporter or player. We'll get to Foster's position in a second, just in terms of the win at the weekend for South Africa. Brendan, it's actually South Africa's biggest win over New Zealand in 94 years. Maybe the fact that a 16-point margin is that significant a stat shows the All Blacks dominance. But I would also say the scoreline flattered New Zealand. Now, do you think, Brendan, that this is a lower point than the Ireland series? Oh, I don't think it's just a continuation of the Ireland series. I didn't think there was a, an improvement or a dip. You know, it was pretty much as I expected. Actually, just picking up a point the, the guys have made there. I've always felt that South Africa is actually the country that produces more consistently great rugby players than any other rugby nation on earth. And, and the conveyor belt is just relentless. And they're all over the world. Uh, and, you know, three out of six of the World Cups they've played, they've won. I've always thought that New Zealand, fabulous rugby nation that it is, in a funny sort of way, has, has punched above its weight. Because I'm not always sure they have as good a players as, as South Africa or France. But they, they had the winning formula. And somehow they did always seem to find, by hook or by crook, the front five forwards to allow, you know, the rest of the uh, extravagant um talent to to shine now there's no doubt about it you know Retallick and Whitelock used to be world-class locks you know they would be the guys you named in a world 15 now they're both test class locks now and neither has gone to seed or gone to pot but they're not the players they were take those two you know so you've got two greats of the game performing below their very best a front row that isn't really doing it as yet and you know, it's, it's not rocket science. They, there you have the problem totally. Funny enough, I, I didn't think I didn't particularly enjoy Saturday's game. I thought it was a great occasion, the build-up, and the you know the rivalry is intense. Big crowd, a, a rugby outpost post-COVID. All the build-up was exciting, and come the match, I thought it was a little bit ho hum. Uh, I'm not expecting this Saturday to be ho hum. I mean, I think this will be Custer's last stand for for New Zealand and, and Foster, and uh, you know New Zealand need to 
to play a few shots, to use a cricket terminology. Did, did you not think, though, Brent, that what, to my eye, what, what distinguished Sadley's game is not for a second of that match did New Zealand look like they're going to win that game? No, no, not, I didn't think they would, I'm, no. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I've seen that before. I mean, even when they got played off the park by England in the semi-final, they always had, um, in the last World Cup semi-final, they, they always, there was still a whiff of danger about them, even though they got their selection a bit wrong and, and tactically they weren't as cute as they usually are. They still scored, I think, two tries rather than one, or it finished one try apiece, even though they, they were clearly inferior on the day. It wouldn't have killed you with shock if they'd actually found a way of winning it at the back mm. end of the match. On Saturday, not for a second did they look as though they were going to win a game. No, you're, you're right. I mean, I suppose you can only go to the world so often when it comes to sort of genius and and extraordinary plays. And they produced so much uh, in the last decade, 15 years, that there comes a point it's not going to happen anymore, you know. Uh, and Bowden Barrett had that one wonderful run out of defence. But, you know, he used to produce three or four moments like that per game, didn't he? Yeah. So it's not happening for him. And it needs to happen on Saturday or else Foster's gone and it's, it's going to be meltdown in New Zealand. Barrett's break accounted for about 90% of New Zealand's yards in that. Yeah. No, it, was, it, was a, it was an odd game. I didn't really particularly enjoy it. I don't know if that's a subconscious thing. I liked uh, New Zealand, but the great entertainers over the years, and they just weren't entertaining me. That's the other aspect that's gone from their game. Yeah, which is obviously a great shame. And on the Bowden Barrett front, he's obviously a fantastic runner at 10. He's not necessarily the tactician that, for example, Johnny Sexton is. I would argue that Richie Mwanga probably is slightly more so, but still doesn't quite fit that bill. Given what we're saying about New Zealand struggling up front, do New Zealand need to look at other options at 10? Maybe Barrett at 15, where Geordie, for example, he hasn't made much of an impact this summer. This is a question to the floor, by the way. And move Bowden to 15, where he slotted in well in 2019. Wouldn't worry me to have Mwanga starting at 10 in any team. I think he's an he's an outstanding player, and I think he, I think the, the the foundation of your argument is correct. I think he is a more rounded number ten than Barrett is, and he might he might be he might be um, a level down on the pyrotechnics, but he's certainly a level up on his goal kicking. Um, you know the reason the reason Geordie Barrett's at fifteen at the moment is because if they want to play Bowden at ten, he's not a he's not a stone cold kicker. He's not. Um, you know, Moonga is a long way ahead of him in that department and probably be kicking out of hand as well. Barrett's, no, he, he's not shy, but Moonga's tackling is, his defensive work is up there with around Carter standard, which is pretty damn good. So mm. I think he probably, if, if you did have the ammunition or a bit more ammunition than's being provided at the moment, with their midfield in a state of flux, because I don't think they're really happy with the centre partnership, anything that they can put out at the moment, which is pretty unusual given the fact that you had Nono and Conrad Smith for God knows how long and they were real giants. So you lose those guys, they take some replacing. I think Moonga brings an intelligence and a pragmatism to the shirt that Bowden is not really instinctively or emotionally, temperamentally I'm sure he's equipped to do it if he wanted to do it, but I'm not sure it's his game, really. It's a bit like asking Quade Cooper to do it. I, I think Moonga is a way forward for them. And and if, if that means Bowden going to 15, he goes to 15. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And it's really interesting that you guys said that on Saturday, you just didn't get the feeling that the All Blacks were ever going to win, with, because I agree that that's a rarity, and I can't think of the last time that ever truly happened. And I was sort of racking my brain prepping for this podcast, thinking about this Saturday and how if New Zealand lose, it may well be curtains for Foster. We'll get to that in a second. But I'm like, what has to happen for New Zealand to win? And I genuinely can't 
picture a, few, a scenario in which New Zealand win? James, I'm going to extend that question to you. How do New Zealand win? Well, yeah, look, I, I think any time you play, I mean, the, the, the South Africans never made it easy. Don't make it easy. It's a very difficult play to play, place to play test rugby, particularly up in the high belt. I think, you know, they're a Neil Spratt uh, and they're going to another outpost. I'm just trying to remember. I can't even pronounce the name of it, but it's not a traditional rugby venue. It's not like an Ellis Park or somewhere that they'd be familiar. So they wouldn't have had a test of this magnitude in a long time. So I think that plays an impact on you psychologically. Not so, But like you're there, you'll likely spend most of the week there. You know, you're in a what is probably a small, much smaller town and everyone will know that you're there and they'll be reminding you what's going to happen on the weekend. You know, the South Africans are quite good at that. You know, no matter where you go, you're playing, you, they, they know their rugby. So, you, you know, everyone will know exactly who you are when you walk around town and any downtime and they'll be there watching training, telling you what's going to happen, telling you what the South Africans are going to do to them. And so that it is a difficult place to play and they'll be hanging from the rafters, no doubt. So I think the All Blacks, we, we've touched on it. They need a bit more parity at set piece. They need to be more aggressive around the, the forward pack to get that front football. We always know what the backs are doing you know, are capable of doing, particularly in broken field play. And I think we touched on it earlier. The kick chase game from South Africa, I think, on the weekend was excellent. You know, if you give your Barretts, both Barretts, and pretty much anyone in the in New Zealand background, any time and space with loose ball, loose kicks, broken field running, you see what can happen. You know, that Barretts sort of, you know, broken field break where he sort of got taken, taken the ball from his own end goal and took it, you know, up past halfway. That is what New Zealand are... That's what they practice. That's what they like. That's what they, how they train, broken field, fractured running. So the more New Zealand can do that and the more that South Africa are going to try and slow it down, get a bit more structure in the game, I think, try and break the structure up. So, you know, I wouldn't be against New Zealand running quick taps, picking up the tempo when they can, changing the pace of the game so New South Africa can't settle into a rhythm that they like to get in. I think that that could help. Just to change it up and put you know put some put some pressure back on the on the Springboks because as we've spoken about the pressure's all on the All Blacks now you know this is a this is a make or break game they they want want to be going back to New Zealand losing two games on the trot. You said that the New Zealand public quite rightly are quite impatient uh, in general. Is it make or break for Foster then? Do you think it's curtains if they lose? I mean, I'm always very you know reluctant to 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 sack you know the the sort of the sacking of the coach. I always sort of becomes quite a, a hair trigger decision. But I, I think what in New Zealand they've got is they've got a guy called Scott Robinson who basically has won every provincial trophy under the sun for about 10 years. And everyone sort of sees him as like, well, you've got to give this guy a go, otherwise we're going to lose him. England are going to take him or one of the other Northern Hemisphere. If we don't give him a, a job, someone's going to pay him a lot of money to come on coach for them. So uh, he's also quite a likeable character. And look, he, he, his success talk. So I think that's putting pressure. If there wasn't someone like Scott Robinson sitting in New Zealand, not as a test coach, I think the decision wouldn't be as, wouldn't be, I think they'd stick with Ian Foster all the way through to after the World Cup. But they're probably sitting there going, look, we've, we want to win the World Cup. We don't want to go two World Cups. We're not performing as well as we would like. It's either now we make a change or we wait until the after the World Cup and make a decision post 2023. I think that's very, very interesting because you're quite right in that it's a lot easier to draft someone in who is ready-made with this New Zealand app. Yeah. We've already spoken about the Crusaders core and obviously Scott Robertson, he know, for obvious reasons, knows the Crusader system inside out. So do you think behind the scenes they've actually got Scott probably locked and loaded 
in the quite likely eventually eventuality now that they come up short again this weekend? Oh, I don't I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the politics of New Zealand rugby, but I, I think if they've already started having conversations with Scott Robinson, then the writing's on the wall. But I do think that there'd be a lot of countries lining up for, for Scott Robinson's signature. And I think you look at it, like, as I said, there, if there wasn't a ready-made replacement, I don't think this discussion's happening. And I don't think there's many countries in the world where you go, okay, we know exactly who's going to be the next Wallabies coach or who's going to be the next English coach with any Jones. I don't, I don't think we have that answer. I think a lot of people guess. Yeah. But I think if you ask 99.9% of New Zealanders who will be the next All Blacks coach, I think Scott Robinson is who the answer they'll give you. Now, I, I don't know enough about the detail around it, but that's that's the way I think it's, it's quite a unique situation yeah. in that sense. Mm. You know, there are very few countries, in fact, you can't really think of any, perhaps, bar South Africa, that would change an incumbent coach in the middle of something like the rugby championship. But I think New Zealand, <laughs> by everything that we've seen in the past, that they are totally ruthless when it comes to uh, coaches not getting the results. So there's got to be a possibility that he does go. There's Scott Robertson also, obviously, um, you know, first man in the bank, you would think, uh, but also Gatlin still floating around as well. I don't know whether he would come in as some sort of uh, riding shotgun to Robertson, but uh, they've definitely got, um, you know, got options. One other thing that I wanted to say about New Zealand, just talking about their, you know, where they're lacking, their back row, you know, and there's a a lot of talk being obviously a huge amount of talk around Sam Kane and so on. But if you look at the back row, which they're perennially always had brilliant back row players at the moment, they're average. Kane has had, has played very well in the past, but he's not playing very well at the moment. The pressure's obviously telling uh, on him, but it's not just him. Akira Ioani is very hot and cold. He can be, you know, extremely impressive, but he doesn't have the level of consistency that you'd expect of a New Zealand back rower. And the only guy who does at the moment is uh, Adi Surveyor. So that's an area in which they've always drawn inspiration, uh, from which they've always drawn inspiration. And that inspiration is not happening at the moment. I'm looking at the game on, uh, on Saturday. Kane looked off the pace, and they were off the pace all round at the at the breakdown. So uh, just throw that into the mix. Just one more question on New Zealand, and Chris, I'm going to come to you for this. They're the fifth in the world rankings. That's an all-time low. Now, one thing we touched upon briefly actually last week with Brett Gosper was the sort of long-term decline that New Zealand may actually be facing. Now, I've got a couple of stats. Well, one stat actually. Player pool in New Zealand is shrinking. Uh, Schoolboy rugby participation has dropped 17% in the past 10 years. Now, we've got um, New Zealand scouts commenting that it's just harder to find those elite-level players. Rugby programs are getting neglected or shut down, partly due to the pandemic, partly due to a loss of interest in other sports. And obviously, we spoke about at the higher level, they're not challenged in super rugby to the same extent because South African teams are no longer there. So is this something then, Chris, that we may actually just be getting used to long term? Well, it's, it's, it's certainly possible if you talk about the participation levels. New Zealand has all, always had a particular issue, hasn't it, with, with the islands community and just the size of some of those guys. They've tried weight-specific rugby, et cetera, et cetera, to try and keep people up aren't as big as the average Tongan kid or the average Samoan kid or whatever, um, to, to try and keep a high participation level and high interest across the communities in the country. So that's, that, that's in a sense, 
that's been an issue anyway, just parents' fears for their kids of playing a very, very physically, uh, a game of great physical contact against people who are a whole lot bigger. So they've tried to address it down the years. I don't know if those those um, weight-specific leagues are still in operation there. You've now got the whole concussion and everything around it layered on top of that, which will be another concern for you know, parents who are looking to get their kids involved in in sport, in team sport. But I, I still think that rugby is so is so absolutely rooted in the New Zealand sporting psyche. I think that if it is a long term decline on, on that basis, it will be very, very long term indeed. I think you'll wait a long time for the game to wither on the vine in New Zealand of all places where I do think at the elite level, they've made some mistakes. And I'd be interested in 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 James's view on this, it seemed to me that after years of being on the sort of wrong cycle, um, World Cup-wise, they were they were either a bit too old or a bit too green uh, to maximise what everyone thought was their potential in the World Cup. They hit it right. They managed to bull their way to a, a title in, in 2011. God knows how, really, given the state of them. Uh, but 2015, they were absolutely on it and they were one of the great sides I've ever seen that team. I mean, that was a remarkable side. But they didn't make the hard decisions, actually, in my view, in selection. A fair few of those guys hung on for the Lions Tour because it was their one-shot Alliance Tour. I can understand that. James has been there. It's a, it's a once-in-a-12-year opportunity and a massive incentive. But it doesn't mean to say that just, just because you played for all the last eight years, you're going to be you're going to be absolutely bang on worth your place in another two years' time after a World Cup. And as we saw, they didn't beat the Lions in that series. And then some of those guys hung on again, possibly for the carrot of being the first to win three World Cups or whatever it was. All your, your Owen Franks and your White Locks and those guys. We're not saying they weren't good players in 2019, but they weren't what they were. And I think at some point in selection, the new generation has to be brought through. And you have to you have to plan for that pretty carefully and you have to do it at the right time. And I think New Zealand are off that cycle at the moment. And I think they've been off it for a while. And you see it now with the shortage of big candidates in key positions. That's a surefire reflection that they were too late in introducing in introducing some of the changes in their starting lineup. James, I think Chris sort of loosely handed the baton to you. What are your thoughts? I'm not saying you were too old, James, yeah. to play yeah. any stage of I, your career. I, I probably was. No. Um, <laughs> Look, I, I I think it's it's quite an interesting point, and I think it's I guess a little bit of the psyche, just to sort of give maybe a bit bit of the Southern Hemisphere psyche around rugby and and Australia particularly and, and New Zealand a little bit is that there's sort of that fear of guys leaving and going to Europe to Japan to to play. It's seen as quite a negative, and there's always in the media, oh, another one goes, oh, we're losing another one. He's going to Europe to, to France to play, or with all this money, he's going to Japan, and it's it has this sort of the, the unions almost look at it as this negative effect. So I think onto what Chris is sort of saying that I think New Zealand might've been guilty of like, look, we can't let these guys go to Europe. You know, we can't let your Kieran Reeds go to Europe. We can't, we got, we need to keep them because it looks good for New Zealand rugby. Everyone knows them. They're, they're big, big profiles in New Zealand. These are like the, the golden generation in which it has been for New Zealand rugby since probably 2010. It's been a pretty golden generation for New Zealand rugby. They've had some, talent there that is you know once in a generation that you you might never ever see again for some of their players and they just didn't want to see them go and play overseas whereas I think 
Chris's point is quite a valid one, is that sometimes the rotation and the bringing through of younger players gets you in a better position here. Now, as we said, we might be having this conversation. They win the Lions series and they win another World Cup. We're like, well, obviously we, we should have kept them. But they've got a rule that's different to a lot of countries is you, you have to play New Zealand to play for the All Blacks. And the, the lure of the All Blacks is something quite big for them and for the country. So, I, look, I think it's it's an interesting look at it, but I think there is that probably psyche of from the, I guess, the New Zealand rugby hierarchy point of view. is We can't let these guys go because it's not going to look good for our, you know, the country. We, we can't have these guys leave. So maybe they held on to them a bit longer just from a brand preservation yeah. point of view. Even the sort of the air incumbents, so to speak, one who was touted as a replacement for Martin Nonu was Nangi Laumapi. 12 is a problem position for New Zealand now. I'd love to see him be given another go at 12 because he never really, he lit up the super rugby scene and he never really put that much of a foot wrong in an all-black shirt and now we don't get to see him and we don't know, which is obviously such a shame. No, that is a very, very good point. Right, let's move on from the all-blacks. It's going to be a hell of a game this Saturday and... We may well have a new All Blacks coach this time next week. Who knows? James, it's time for your random rugby 15. All right, well, let's get into it. So, nickname. My nickname's Big Kev. Big Kev. Big Kev. Is so, it short for uh, Kevin? Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I've basically known that since I'm 14. Pretty much everyone calls me either Kev or a variant of Kev or Big Kev, other than my wife and my parents. It's based pretty much on a uh, loosely on a cleaning products infomercial salesman that used to be here in Australia has now passed away God rest his soul he used to be quite a big chap whose name was Big Kev McQueen and he used to sell cleaning products on TV and his catch cry was I'm excited very you know big guy um, on sort of morning TV and as a young kid I used to be quite excitable I was quite big so hence I became Big Kev and basically I'm yeah that's that's been me since I'm probably 14 or 15. I'm trying to find a photo of him, Kevin McKee. <laughs> yeah, McQueen. I don't, I don't look anything like him, but he was quite <laughs> a big chap who uh, had a, unfortunately passed away. Oh, geez, I'm going to say five, six, seven years ago now. Uh, you, no, a long time ago, 2005. Oh, I, th- oh, I thought it was later than that. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. He was 146 kilos. I don't think you're ever quite that big, even no. in your playing days, <laughs> anywhere near. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've just found a picture of him. Not the most flattering comparison. <laughs> no. No. But anyway, that's that's yeah. uh, that's my that's my nickname. Sorry, oh, n- n- nice how it sticks, though. Yeah. I mean, my, a lot of people didn't even know my name was James. I remember I sat in a team meeting with Steve Kefu when I started at the Reds, and they sort of put your name up on the board when they're announcing the first trial teams, and they sort of looked at me and goes. I thought your name was Kevin. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd spent five months of preseason training with him and he didn't know my name was James. <laughs> Best rugby memory? Uh, I'd say winning the 2011 Super Rugby title uh, with the Reds. Just because I'd, um, where we'd come from, I guess, you know, we'd, you know, we'd bottomed out. I, I'd started in 05 with the Reds and we were sort of the laughing stock. You know, I was part of the team that lost 92 to 3 to the Bulls in 2007. It was a period where people were embarrassed to wear a Reds jersey around Brisbane here. Brisbane's not a huge town for those that have been, some of you have been here, but, you know, we're quite a parochial, fickle sort of town. They love winners and people were embarrassed to wear a Reds jersey around. And we got it to a point that year where we, you know, we played some really good rugby, but we sort of, I guess, won the hearts and minds of the the Queensland public. Um, We'd 
there was a natural disaster that basically put our stadium underwater at the, you know, about three weeks before the season started. So we were, you know, getting changed into mountable change rooms pretty much on the street in the car park before games. And yeah, it was just, a, it sort of all worked out. And we had to play the final at Suncorp, you know, broke a crowd record, you know, for a place that plays state of origin and Broncos rugby league games, the exact same stadium to have the, the ground record at that time set by a rugby union crowd was, you know, quite special. And uh, yeah, to do it in front of your home fan ground is just something that uh, I guess will always resonate with me. Did you shed a tear that day? Obviously you shed it. The second Lions test, I remember quite famously, you shed a, a tear or two on the pitch. You shed a tear on, the, on that day as well. Yeah. I did too. Yeah, for, I think I shed a few. <laughs> I think there's a post-match interview of me trying to trying to speak, but I can't. <laughs> really, um, I well, can't. I can't actually get it out. <laughs> speaking of most embarrassing rugby memory, embarrassing. Uh, it's probably done too much. It's embarrassing to actually think of it. It probably goes back to when I was younger. I remember I got I, I got a when I was a youngster. I played and I, I got a I got a try disallowed for overzealous celebrations because I I I, I celebrated and. <laughs> Did something stupid, and the, the referee back then just went, "No, Travis is allowed penalty against you on the halfway." So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's actually was was allowed to do, but it was quite embarrassing at the time in front of all the crowds when you sort of give it the big one, and uh, the referee yeah. goes, "No, that's not happening, mate." So, um... <laughs> <laughs> God, pre-game tune. I think the the one I used to listen to the most was there was one by Kanye West called "Never Let You Down." I don't actually know why I picked that song, but it. Um, it just sort of resonated with me, and I used to listen to that every time I walked off the bus, um, no matter when I, when I played from pretty much the start of my career to the end. Really? Same song every time? Yeah. Okay, nice. Post-game meal? It's usually the pizza. I mean, when I was at Quinn's, we used to have a crew of us that used to go get Five Guys. That was sort of our post-game meal. We'd go get a, a Five Guys burger. Um, there was a crew of us that sort of lived around Putney there, and we used to go. There was a Five Guys on Putney High Street. That was yeah. sort of our regular... There, um, I currently sit there in Five Guys and uh, have a hamburger with the lot. So that's probably my standard post game meal. Yeah, best player you've played against? Best player I've played against. It's almost like it's, uh, similar to the best. I guess probably I'd say Richie McCall, probably, but not, I guess, sort of thought we're touching on before, not because he was actually the best player, but the impact that he had on the team around him that a team that had Richie McCall in it played better than a team that didn't have Richie McCall in it. So the team was harder to beat when he was playing, even if he didn't play that well. And I think that was the, that's to me is quite evident of a great player. You know, he made everyone else better. They got a lot more confidence, whether that was a Crusaders side or, a, or an All Black side. I found he, you know, I remember distinctly he played an All Blacks test. He, we played in Sydney. He didn't play. We won quite convincingly. Next week he played in New Zealand and they were like a completely different beast. And now it might not all be down to him, but for me that, uh, that's a sign of a great player. Yeah, it just gives them that lift. Best player you've played with? Uh, George Smith. Favourite player right now? Favourite player right now? That's a good question. To be honest, and, and he's, a, he's a good mate of mine, but I'd say James Slipper. I think the guy just keeps getting better. And I've, you know, I've got a bit of a man crush on him because I think, you know, he's a, he's a great mate of mine and someone I speak to sort of almost, you know, weekly. But... I just think the ability to just keep going for what he's been through. I mean, he's picked up the can, you know, on the weekend, um, you know, in the England series. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that, you know, playing a test at tight head, lock, uh, tight head when you're not a tight head and, you know, winning scrum penalties against England, you know, how hard that is to 
do one week and then swap back to loose head the next week in the modern game. I just think he, I just think he's under underappreciated. So I want to show him a bit of love. I'm sure he'll appreciate that, and he's probably got a few years left as well, which is weird because it feels like he's been around forever. Exactly. I mean, he's uh, yeah, he's got he's probably got two to three. He probably make it to the Lion series at least. He could yeah play two yeah. Lion series, I guess. Yeah, that would be very cool. No comeback for you to play alongside him. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm I'm very well retired at the moment. Rugby idol. I think obviously an Aussie growing up that was quite tall playing lock was John Eels. So he was probably the guy that I used to look up to the most. Favourite stadium? I mean, I like Suncorp here in Brisbane, which I think is a great rugby stadium. But if we're going to go outside of Australia, I'd probably say uh, Newlands. Favourite gym exercise? Curls. Bicep curls. (laughs) At least you're open about it. For for pure vanity, mate, there's no other reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they don't really translate on a rugby pitch, do they? They just make make the shirt a bit tighter. Exactly. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Uh, I'm probably doing it right now. So yeah, working working in the automotive industry. Superstitions. I had a few, but main the main ones I always put my left sock and right sock on and left boot, right boot. Always. Rugby law you would change. I'd bring back rucking. Okay. We were talking about that quite a lot last week. Yeah. For safety reasons, for continuity reasons. I just think it's I I think it the, the self the, the referees have a lot to look at and it's hard it's a hard job and I have a you know and but I think if you can self-police it people aren't going to do it and now I'm not talking stamping or stomping or anything like that but if someone is purposely not moving I guarantee if you if you give them a shoeing the next time they'll get they're going to get out of there real quick so I sort of my see my career started a little bit when rucking was still sort of allowed early 2000s um so you know you get stuck on the wrong side of a ruck or try and collapse a mall and stay down i mean you, you'd walk off with scars all over your back but the next week you wouldn't you wouldn't do it so i think there needs to be a little bit more not self self-policing is probably the wrong word but i think that bring in the the rucking element and i understand why they don't like it because it doesn't look good and we you know we talked about before with the kiwis you know it's not a good look to have someone dancing up and down on someone's back but i i just think it can it's too organized. Defenses are so organized nowadays and they work so hard to slow the ruck down. We want to see fast ruck ball because it's fractured defenses, which is running rugby, flowing, broken field play. So I think that's, I think rucking would increase the ruck speed, which therefore would increase, you know, therefore create more breaks in play, more unstructured defense, therefore making the attack and the, the spectacle a better spectacle. Yeah, no, very interesting. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby or when you did? Look, I think that the, the people or the mateship that you have with the team, I think it's a it's a unique environment and it's probably you don't appreciate as much until you actually step out of it. You're doing some, you're asking people to do some crazy things and, you know, put your body through a, through a bunch and you probably don't appreciate how sort of blasé you are about it until you step out and discuss it with people that don't do it every day and haven't done it every day for since they were a young kid. It's sort of looked at as... A little bit crazy and I think you know that that you know understanding of like hey we're going to get where well, there's a real chance we're going to get really hurt what we're about to do but we're okay with it and we're all signing up and it's going to be great you, there's sort of a, a weird sort of a bond that you have with people when you agree to do that and I think it's that sort of mateship and the bond that you have and the touring with guys when you're doing that that's the stuff you miss when you finish playing don't you you know you miss the games and the celebrating the wins but that sort of mateship around a team uh, in the locker room after training or after a win or on tour when you you know 
we were lucky in Subaru, we used to do, you know, two to three week long tours. You know, that stuff is, um, you know, it's not, it's quite unique to the, the sport of rugby and I think it should be celebrated. Yeah, there's a t- togetherness, isn't there, in terms mm. of when you gear yourselves up to go through a version of hell together. <laughs> I, I, I think other sports don't necessarily bring. Uh, so, no, I think that's a really, really great answer. Right, 15 questions done. You're actually only this. We've had 26 guests now. You're the second person to say curls for nice. favorite gym exercise. Only the second person, which I <laughs> is fairly I think they're all. Actually. I think they're all lying to you personally. Yeah, I think they probably are as well. I'll start, start calling some people out if they start saying plank or squats or anything yeah, like that. Squat. Anyone that says squat is 100% lying. <laughs> You didn't like a squat then? Oh, I'm a tall, long levers, mate. Tall, yeah. tall man. Squat is not a tall man's friend. <laughs> no, it really isn't. <laughs> right, let's get to the Argentina-Australia game. Now, we said that the South Africa scoreline flattered the losing side. I would argue here that the scoreline flattered the winning side. Brendan, would you agree with that? Yeah, I've got full disclosure. I only saw a bit of it. but um, And yet, if you take the circumstances of the match, losing Hooper 48 hours before... Uh, Karevi injured in the sevens. That's a good win. You know, that's a decent win. A come from behind win. Um, so I wouldn't underestimate, you know, just, just getting over there, getting to Argentina and getting the win. And given the circumstances of Michael Hooper, which we'll, we'll probably talk about in a minute, but I've always thought Australia were incredibly reliant on Michael Hooper uh, and without him probably couldn't function. Now, although, the, you know, the situation of him pulling out and going home is a little bit worrying and, and not ideal. It's good for Australia that they, they've overcome all that uh, and got that W on the road. So I think Australia would be pretty happy with that. James, let's start with the Michael Hooper thing, actually. James, what do you make of it? Oh, look, I think it's, you know, yeah, credit to, to Hoops. I think it's it takes a brave man. You know, a bit, you know, I understand the situation that you sort of sit there and you feel like, particularly as a skipper, that, you, you know, the responsibilities on him. And I think you look at, him and, you know, Brendan just touched on it before. I mean, he has carried the can for Australia for a long time, you know, in, you know, I think someone released a stat the other day. I think there's, since Hoops made his debut in 2012, there's been 126 test matches. He's played in 115 of them and started 112. I mean, and it's, he finishes, it's a rem- he's never replaced, yeah. is he? The only time he gets arrested, yeah. he gets the yellow card. He has a fancy exactly. one, but... And and that's not including what he would have done for the for the Waratahs. It would be yeah. pretty much the same. I don't think he never. So I mean, he has played a, a, such a lot of rugby, not being injured at a high level, at a high intensity, at the highest standard, and he's been skipper for a big part of that for the Wallabies. The most capped Wallabies captain now, and through a period that have gone through you know a lot of turmoil in Australian rugby, probably hasn't had the support from either a coaching base or even a player base around him that hasn't supported, you know, a leadership, you know, group spine that you have. You look at some of the great teams we've discussed before, they've always got, you know, a bunch of guys that you could go, he's easily going to be the next skipper. He's, you know, he'd step in, bang, bang, bang. Australia probably haven't had that. So a lot of it's gone on Hoops' shoulders. And he's probably just come to a point where, like, you know, the guy needs a break, you know, and I think he should personally, if there's anyone in Australian rugby or in world rugby that deserves a break, it's him. And I think he, you know, I think he should be given as much time as he needs. Even if it's the rest of the year, I would be against, you know, him going, look, take the rest of the year off, have a break, get away from it. You know, he's just had a a young, he had the birth of his first child earlier in the year. So just take a break, allow us to blood some young guys, you know, Fraser McWright sort of got his opportunity, a great, 
a great player for Queensland. He's been playing really well at Super Rugby level. He was Super Rugby Player of the Year this year with for the Reds. So I think he's a guy that you know now gets his opportunity. And now while giving you know probably one of the great players of World Rugby a break and just a reset and move on. So look, I think it's I think it takes a it's a brave man to be able to stand up, particularly a skipper with you know the, a lot of guys and you you know you've seen the the outpouring of. I guess emotion to it. A lot of guys would be looking to him, and he would he would understand that in, in that environment. A lot of young guys are always looking at hoops and what he's going to do. So, um, yeah, it's a big it's a big call for him, but I, I think it's a brave one and 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 definitely the right one. It's very interesting. We had Gareth Chilcott on, didn't we, the other week? Yeah. And one of his one of the questions: Who's your rugby idol? And I was expecting some hairy ass French prop or somebody from the I don't know Bristol combination or something, and it was Michael Hooper. Michael Hooper yeah. was absolutely his rugby idol. And, you know, yeah. even over here, I think people appreciated, well, he puts his body on the line every match. He puts his reputation on the line. He dies for Australia every match. Uh, and there has to be a point where you just can't, you just can't physically do that. And you just have to recognise that moment and go home. Yeah, It, it, it seems to me, uh, I mean, the, the, the word great is used far too loosely, as we know. And I don't think I've seen many people who I would call great rugby players within within the terms of reference I prefer to apply to it. I think Hooper is one of the, the great, the genuine greats of modern rugby for the, for the reasons that James has, has, has outlined. He's not, he's not a one-man... I mean, it's ridiculous to call any Wallaby a one-man team. That's a nonsense. Um, but he, mean, he means absolutely as much within the Wallaby context as Jacques Berger did in Namibia and Gorgodze did in... Georgia, when they were obviously for quite long periods the outstanding player in their side by quite a distance and in an incredibly physical, incredibly physical position with the leadership stuck on him. And I think he's he's been absolutely extraordinary. Um, and, and the expectations on him, of course, are far greater than the expectations would have been on Jack Berger or Marmuka Gorgodze. He's ex- sort of expected to win, even when on Australia on a in a, in a weak state or a weaker state. He's expected to win. He's expected to deliver and to carry that load for as long as he has, as effectively as he has. I think that puts him in the very front rank of players in 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 the last 10, 15 years of this generation. Let's say, James, when you were captain, I think you were Australia captain for three seasons. Am I right in saying? Yeah, it'll be about that. There was an injury sort of layoff in between one, but yeah, probably about so you, yeah, three to four years. You had the responsibility or even during the injury for that period of time. Was there over a point where you found that pressure was really getting to you and you considered stepping away yourself? Oh, look, I, I don't know if I ever got to the point where stepping I understood the pressure um, and I think it's, it's not so much the external pressure of like, oh, you know, you've got to win it. Like that's a given playing test rugby for your country is, you're there to win. That's what. That's the point of you know playing. It's not. It was more the the sort of the pressure that you the input the the pressure that you put on yourself to like, okay, it's really important that I get this right because I want to win. I want to help the team win. I've got to do everything right. It's all. It's about me. And you sort of get that sort of internal internalizing. So, was there ever a point that I felt like I needed to step away? On hindsight, maybe, but not not nothing that ever sort of got to that point. But you know, maybe when you reflect back on it at times and probably early on in my career, you know, I, I could have been better at sort of sharing the love or, you know, I can someone that was sort of has to, all me, I've got to do everything. It's all about, you know, I could, I'll just do it. Just do it for yourself rather than sharing the love. And, 
you know, I think that might have played an element into where Hoops has got. As I said, I don't know if he's had the over the years. Mate, now he's got a bit more support, but I don't think over the years he's had the support either from an organisation point of view and and also from a team point of view. He hasn't had the guys around him giving him that support, and he's sort of been that lone wolf leading the charge. And that that can be very draining, very fatiguing for for a person. To, and then on top of that, having to play. So, you, you know, you're mentally drained. And I think it's, as I said, I think he just needs a break. I wonder if as well, 10 years on, this is a sort of thing that's becoming more and more acceptable in a manner that is accelerating. And whether, I don't know, you being captain 10 years ago, walking away from that role, you know, rugby's a very no weakness sport. And that's that that stigma is changing in a positive way, I would say. But maybe you didn't necessarily see it as an optional report of call should you have needed it. Yeah, look, I think there's certainly the mentality's changed across global sport, but certainly rugby, as, as you touched on. It's, um, you know, I think rugby's doing some good things around the mental health space because it is becoming more and more important and understanding that it's, you know, in, you know, rugby, and I'm the same, you know, like to, like to analyse and know, you know, I've broken my arm. How long, when can I be back? You know, you know, you need three weeks for it to heal and you can wear a plate or a brace and you'll be back in, in a month. So you sort of, that's you know whenever you're injured and you get that's the way you sort of approach it now with mental health it doesn't work like that it's sort of like a it's an ongoing thing and working out how you manage it and I think that's the challenge but I think rugby's doing some great things in that space and sport and the world it's becoming more accepting to sort of see and I think that's the way that it's sort of been celebrated globally but for, for someone like Michael Hooper to go hey I'm not okay I need to go home I need to get away from here and just take some time away and everyone's sort of gone you know, well done. That should be done more often. And hopefully, and hopefully there's some, maybe it might have an impact on a younger guy, maybe not in Australia or in somewhere that's like feeling the same way as well. If Michael Hooper can do it, I can do it. You know, it's, it's okay for me to do it too. And I think, I don't think we should underestimate the impact that that might have on a broader rugby context. It's very encouraging, isn't it? Just how except not only accepted, but respected a decision like that is publicly. Now, Let's talk about um, Australia a little bit now. One slight concern, I suppose, is Quade Cooper, who missed the bulk, all of um, the England series in the end. He pulled out just um, before the first game. He injured his ankle this time around. Chris, we've spoken about how Australia are yet to really move on from Quade Cooper. And I wonder whether it's now the time to sort of start to do that for the rugby championship. If the ankle injury, like we might suspect, will rule him out for at least a month. Oh, it's a, it's a bad injury. Is it's, it? I spoke, I spoke to him this morning. So it's, um, yeah, he's on his way home. He's going to have to, it looks like a ruptured Achilles. So, um, yeah. So I don't, he ain't, he's got to have surgery, I think this week. So, oh, shit. That's not been um, reported. It's been reported as ankle. It's not. No, I mean, I think it's reported now in, all, in some of the odds press, but yeah, it's, um, it's, I think it's quite obvious to see what it was. So it's not, I don't think it's going to be a quick turnaround. No, well, well it's, it's not, not it's not, then. I mean, he's going to, he's going to have to have surgery, I think this week coming up. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So six was the ruptured Achilles is six months usually, isn't it? So yeah. I, right. Well, I'll alter my question then, <laughs> given that he, he won't come back for six months or so. This is the time to really start. Well, Potentially making a plan B become a plan A for World Cup time. Well, they probably haven't got much of a, much of a choice. They're going to have to put someone else out there. Um, it, it, it doesn't help that, that, that Cooper, in, in that unique way of his, looked a real 
a real bag of beans actually on 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 Saturday in that in that early phase of the game. I mean, he created one try just with just with body shape and the timing of a pass, and that's you know it's difficult to coach that stuff. I mean, he's such an instinctive player, um, and you know all the all the great Wallaby sides going back to your Ellers, followed by Liner, followed by Larkin, you know, and you had your Gittos around and what have you, but they're, they're number 10. They've, they've got an exceptional tradition at number 10. Re- remarkable, actually, as good as good as anywhere on earth, in, including Wales, better than Wales, I would argue, in many respects. So, yeah, what do they do? Lolosio seems to be the, the guy that they're looking at long-term. He's had his runs. Some, some of the time he's looked pretty promising. Some of the times he's gone a bit rabbit in the headlights and made some made some some errors and and which have contributed to system errors if you like so individual stuff and it throws the whole sort of team out of out of sync um but i'm not sure i'm not sure that there are that many alternatives to him at the moment i i, I imagine he's he's the guy that that that, that rennie must be looking at uh, or must have been looking at as a world cup squad player and if Cooper was fit and firing and, you know, he wasn't showing his age and he still had all his tricks in place and what have you, he may well have been the starting 10 at the World Cup. And he may well still be the starting 10 at the World Cup, depending on his recovery. But Lodicea obviously has something going for him. He does look, when he's playing well, a good player. He's yet to become anything more than that, I think, on the, on the big stage. But he certainly has a bag of potential, doesn't he? So, um, so maybe this is his time, as they say. James, what's your view on James O'Connor at the moment and the direction he's going at? He's obviously had a bloody up and down career. Yeah, look, oh, look, I think Rabs is a guy that you know has oodles of ten- potential. My, my opinion, I don't think he's his best position is ten. I, I, I think he's more of a, a utility back. I think he fit in at twelve. I think he plays fullback or even on the wing. I, I think he some of what of his X factor and his use of footwork is. Uh, a little bit wasted at, at 10. You know, I think he's been doing a job there for the Reds, certainly because they haven't had that um, that role, been someone to be able to fill in, in that role and probably, you know, through injury and through, through the like, you know, has had to do the job. And don't get me wrong, he does a, he does a good job there, but I don't think it's his his best position as a player. I think, he, I think he's more suited to, to playing a bit further out, get a bit more time with the ball in hand and being able to use his footwork to... To do to do things rather than you know he's not as, as great a distributor as say a Quaid or even a Noah and and he's his kicking game has certainly improved but I don't think it's at sort of that sort of level he's um, so look I think he's a guy that you know obviously he's had a couple of injuries but he's sort of you know had a couple of renaissance in his career over time there's been a, you know a couple of dips and a couple of you know well publicised um, hiccups throughout his career but I think he's sort of come back and been on that straight and narrow now. It's about his body being able to hold up over the next little bit and, you know, get him to hopefully get to the World Cup. But, uh, you know, now that Quaid is going to be out for an extended period of time, he, there's a chance that he might have to fill that role a, a little bit more. That's right. No, I think Curly Beal's back in the country. He's now going to play for the Waratahs next year. So I, I think he'll come in and maybe cover a little bit around that 10 role now that we've, we've lost Quaid because, you know, as you touched on, it is an area that we've, haven't really found an heir apparent over that time. And, you know, I think there was a, I was trying to find it up before, there was a stat that came around of, I guess, Australian under 20s fly halves and how many tests that, you know, over the last sort of decade and how many 
tests they've played Super Rugby, they've played and how many games they've actually played at ten. And there's you know there's only a handful. And Noah's the only one that's played more than one of the. I think of the Australian under twenties number tens that have played over a period of time. Noah's the only one that's played multiple tests at at ten. The, the other one I think there was Kyle Godwin who's played one test. The rest haven't actually played a test match at 10, which I guess shows you that sort of development pathways, which the under-20s are. You know, we've struggled to find someone, you know, as we touched on a a position in Australian rugby that's always, I guess, you know, sometimes been the the envy of a lot of of world rugby when you've got the likes, you know, you talked about the Ellers, the Larkins, the Liners. You know, that was always something, it's sort of like Australian 10s and Australian, you know, world-class number sevens. It's sort of something that goes uh, hand-in-hand with... um, you know, Australian rugby. So it's something that we've struggled to find over the last little bit, you know, to fill those boots of the Quaid Coopers and the Matt Giddos of the world. Well, yeah. t- tell me this, James. What, 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 we, we have this discussion quite a lot on this podcast about the, the the ideal shapes of midfields and whether you play a basher or a ball carrier at 12 or you play a second footballer at 12. I mean, all, all those great Wallaby sides, and, and we, we we ran through the, the outside half, that you've had down the years and those of us who were old enough um, to remember remember Michael Liner playing outside Mark Eller in 84. We remember Tim Horan who could do pretty much anything on a rugby field, including play 10 um, on the odd occasion for the Wallabies, but what a 12 and, and he had everything, including all the footballing skills. And then you go on and you saw the impact that Gitto had in 2015 and that was a pretty good Wallaby a pretty good Wallaby mm. side, and you know they they stuck God's amount of points on England, who played pick two centres who couldn't pass the ball. So, do do you think that there's still a call for the footballer at twelve, or do you think that the massive that the, the game has moved towards the mega physicality of of a ball carrying bashing twelve? No, I think it's about balance. I think it's similar with your forward pack. It's about the balance you get right. So, if you're going to pick a a basher, say a Samu Karevi at 12, you want to be able to have one of your other, usually your fullback who's that second playmaker who can step up to the line and and distribute and get those hands going. And, you know, I think a lot is sort of made of set piece of, you know, from the number on your back. But but besides sometimes set piece and even then, the number of the back is not not where you a lot of the time these guys are playing. You'll have, you know, the 15 will be, will be first receiver to the 10 who's out the back to the 12 who's then further wide is the 13 is coming short. So I think it's about getting the balance and the flow right of your, in your forward, in your, in your, in your team. So in the back line particularly, but also the forward pack, you look at the balance, you know, guys that are working and not working. So I think that's, I think it's more about that than sort of going, well, you have to have a 12 that can distribute. You have to have a 10 that, you know, a 15 that can do this and that. I think it's the game sort of evolved a little bit to, the number is almost less relevant. It's about the balance of the seven guys or the eight guys in the forward pack that get the get the job done. So that's certainly where somebody like a James O'Connor at fifteen could mm. be really, really productive for for a Wallaby side if he's if he's yeah. if he's not a ten per se, which yeah. you could argue he isn't. But there's still a hell of a lot of playmaking to be done from a exactly from a, a fle- flexibility in the back line which allows him to show the best of himself. Exactly. And I think that's where I think that is some of his better work. And, you know, he probably doesn't like it, but, you know, even coming off the bench, you know, a guy that can sit there and cover, you know, 10, 12, 15 and both wings, pretty handy to have on your bench. It allows you to do a few other things. You know, you could have a big ball carrier that can come on late that you might only play one or two positions. So it, 
it it gives the balance of your bench a much nicer look to it. And I think that's, you know, while he's, you know, he wants to start, everyone wants to start, I think, you know, he's a he's a perfect bench option just because he's got so much utility value across a number of positions in your back line. It allows you to, you know, put a real X-factor player there, you know, to, that can just break open a game maybe in the last 10 minutes when everyone's tired. One thing we did speak about just to stray away from Australia very briefly and Nick I think you were a part of this discussion it was several episodes ago now was forward passes Mike Adamson was refereeing uh, in the Argentina Australia game and there were certainly a couple of questionable forward passes in Argentina's try certainly and just in broken play generally do you think that several were missed yes (laughs) And, (laughs) and almost always are and I think that certain sides um have turned it into an art form um, the obvious uh, side that um, seemed to get away with more than anybody else, despite their uh, excellence in, in offloading otherwise, is New Zealand. I mean, the number of tries that they've scored, which have been definitely missed, is unbelievable almost. But uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an unnecessary epidemic. You've got the intervention of the assistant uh, referees and it shouldn't be as prevalent as it is. Fortunately, they are being picked up more. There seemed to be a time when they were just waved through almost. They are being picked up more, but um, there was a try at the end of the game that Australia scored, which um, I think was definitely forward. And the commentary team sort of um, got in a mess around it, awarding it and then not awarding it and so on. And uh, so, yeah, uh, and the person who's fulminated about it very, very effectively is Brendan, who, <laughs> who called it uh, extremely well. You know, I mean, I, I, all, all the smoke and mirrors around whether fingers are pointing this way or that, you see whether a ball travels forward or not. And if your instinct is that it's gone forward, you blow it. You don't bloody well prevaricate. Well said, Nick. Well said. You, you, you always know when you're going to have this issue when fields run on with, with a quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I find amazing, I mean, in the old days, you used to be able to go and watch New Zealand train, not just New Zealand, but New Zealand in particular, or even you watch their warm-ups. I mean, I've gone to a New Zealand training session. I haven't seen a single legal pass in half an hour. And that's not saying they're all wildly forward, but every single pass is between a foot and two foot forward. There's no attempt to actually do a legal pass. Yeah. Um, and they've absolutely battered officialdom. They man others, and it's not just them, they've battled officialdom, battered them into allowing this flat pass or the just a couple of feet forward. It's okay, isn't it? You know, it's not okay. Because as I said in my little bit of the column the other day, if you do that, the defences get flatter and flatter and flatter. The attack gets flatter and flatter and flatter. You get non-stop midfield collisions and you have you know, a significant increase in the concussion uh, that's going on, you know, and the upper torso hits. It's not rocket science. Go back to what we used to have, um, which was great to watch, and there was less career-ending injuries. Let's close that can of worms before Brenda gets gets too angry. Hold down, Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, just looking ahead very, very briefly, James, what would you consider as a success from this rugby championship? Obviously, hopefully a clean sweep against Argentina is secured this weekend. Now, the box and the All Blacks present very different challenges. How many wins out of those four fixtures do you think David Rennie will be eyeing up? Well, I think he's probably eyeing up all of them at the moment. Now, that's easier said than done. But I, look, I think the biggest test for the Wallabies 
get another win here in Argentina. We're currently on top of the rugby championship table with um, bonus points. I mean, traditionally, we've done very well against South Africa in Australia. So we've got two tests, both at, both at home. So, you know, traditionally, our success rate against South Africa has been very good, even when the, the Springboks are going well. And I think a big thing for, for Australian rugby is the Bledisloe Cup. Now, I think there'll be a, a feeling that there's an opportunity now to win that back. And I don't think we've won it back for 20 years. Now, to sort of give you an idea of what the Australian side is, I mean, it, it's basically the Bledisloe Cup and the World Cup are almost on par. If we win that back, it's it's a big, big thing for Australian rugby and for the Australian public. So it's, you know, it probably shouldn't be, but it's almost it's given more kudos. If we don't win the rugby championship, but we win the Bledisloe Cup, I think that'll be considered a successful year for, for Australian rugby. And I think it's it's been a long time since we won it. We've won the rugby championship a couple of times in the recent in the recent years, but we've never been able to win that that elusive trophy against the against the the All Blacks. So that's where I think Australia will be targeting. And I think now they'd, they'd be quite pleased to see New Zealand rugby not probably firing on all cylinders because it's a huge, huge opportunity that we probably haven't had in a, in a number of years. Can I ask you this, James? Um, your, your view on current Aussie selection policy, well, this week's Aussie selection policy, which may change again by next week, <laughs> again the week after. But at it, 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 this stage of a World Cup cycle, and you'd want to be using this rugby championship as a, as a bit of a launch pad, um, because then you've got the autumn coming up. And would it not be better for the Wallabies to take the South African approach and just say, guys, go play where you like? As long as you're available to us when we need you, go and play when you when you where 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 you like because you could have the Arnolds back in in train, you could have Will Skelton yeah. back in train, you could have Sean McMahon back in train, and those are heavyweight players. Those, yeah. those are I, serious players. I think they they're doing that slightly. I think there's I sort of touched on it before. The risk of doing of open slather is that you know that we're they're trying to grow the provincial game in in Australia, and that's the that's the biggest issue. And I think. Probably not the top line players going abroad for Australia, but it's more that sort of second tier, that mid level of player that's you know a regular Super Rugby player that probably you know might make it to a Test player, but not not regularly sort of does it for a couple of years and goes, you know what, they're not going to pick me, so I'm going to go and go to Japan and earn a, a crap load of money and um, you know not worry about that because you know I'm only going to do this for ten years, so I might as well cash out as much as I can. So I think. They are looking at that. You know, Rory Arnold is in camp with the Wallabies uh, at the moment. I think Will Skelton's a different kettle of fish. Currently, there's three. Now, originally, it was Quade Cooper, Richie Arnold, uh, Rory Arnold and Samu Karevi. So two of those guys are now injured for about nine months. So <laughs> it's sort of a poison chalice bringing guys back from overseas. Obviously, Kirtley is another one, but he signed with an Australian pro- province for next year. So he's not included. So they've probably opened up two of those spots. Now, who they fill with that, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, you know, Will Skelton we've touched on is a, would be, a you know, the damage that we've seen him do, you know, particularly against the Springbok side. We're talking about, you know, big bodies. You know, imagine him and Rory Arnold in your second row. It's, you know, it's not a bad-looking, um, you know, forward pack, you know, to, to, to go up against the box. So, look, I think they're certainly looking at it. I think it's more and more going that way. I think my personal opinion is you have an open slather for the World Cups and there should be a cycle time, you know, basically go, hey, we, we've got a limit for outside World Cup, but for the World Cup, we can pick anyone. We don't care where you're playing because we want to win the World Cup because it's such an important thing in the cycle of, of world rugby 
and test rugby at the moment, you know, everyone talks about, you know, these four-year cycles, you know, why wouldn't you maximise your chance of winning it? Particularly, you know, we've got a 2027 World Cup here in Australia, you know, the next one. So, you know, I, I guarantee you Australian rugby, if we go around going, we need every player we ever produced to be coming back and being fit to play that test, you know, because the Australia win that, we saw what happened in 03. We, weren't, we didn't win it, unfortunately, but the success that that sort of bred in a generation of rugby because the Wallabies were, you know, not, they didn't win it, but they you know, came very, very close. It's crucial that Australia do well at that next World Cup. So I, I think that basically touching on what you're saying, I, I think they should turn to that, but only for the World Cup cycle and what that is, whether that's starting 18 months out or the year of, but I, I do agree that that's what they'll probably go. I think that's what they're going to go to anyway. I think you'll see that come next year. You do? I, I think so. I think that, I mean, they, as Chris said, they, they changed it. You know, originally it was one player and, you know, they have all the service. Now it's three players and it, it'll turn to five players because of COVID or something. And then it'll, look, I think they're just massaging their way through it and it'll get to a point where they're like, actually, guys, it's open slather for World Cups. But I think next year, I mean, I don't know. You know, there's a there's a, a few guys that you definitely pull back, but you wouldn't pull back everyone. You know, I think the the two locks we've been talking about, you know, Sean McMahon's a different one um, who came back a little bit last year but probably didn't have the impact that they would have liked, so they let him go. You know, Quaid, Samu's probably the biggest one, I think, at the moment, who's, you know, his impact on the English series was quite remarkable. Um, and so it's a shame he's done his ACL, so he's out for an extended period. But, yeah, look, I think it's... They should have the ability to select and it will be interesting to see where it gets to. Before we wrap up, I want, I want to go around and get predictions for the rugby championship in terms of the order that we're going to finish. I will start with, actually, as on my screen, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. I think, uh, you, what, you want one to four? One to four. One to four, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina. Okay, so our, how many wins are Australia getting against New Zealand? Hang on, my crystal ball is just over here. Um, I think they can. I'd, I'd, I'd certainly expect them to win one game against okay. uh, against New Zealand. Brendan, I wouldn't disagree with any of that from Chris. Actually, um, South Africa yeah. win was a good second place with at least one win against New Zealand. Argentina, very tough, hard yakker for the next month or two. James, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to go Australia. Going to win it. South Africa second, New Zealand third. Uh, Argentina fourth and Australia going to win two tests against the All Blacks Britain, win the Blues low cut back for the first time in 21 years statement that's a statement and a half and how many tests against the box uh, we'll, we'll win one I think okay. we've got one in, Adla- one in Adelaide and one at the brand new redone Sydney football stadium which is only yeah. just finished so it's a brand it's all been re- redone bigger crowd bigger stadium um, so they're playing one at Adelaide Oval, which is interesting. I think it's the first test match there in a very long time. So they've just done a bit of a cricketing stadium. But, yeah, the first test, I believe, is in, in Adelaide, at the Adelaide Oval. Okay. And Nick, round us off. Yeah, I mean, I, the pecking order, I, I don't have too many disagreements with. I'm not sure that New Zealand will finish third. Australia might well. I think that South Africa will beat Australia in both of the tests in Australia. I think that Argentina... <laughs> This next weekend, I mean, it was a it was a really weird game. The refereeing didn't help, but Argentina were absolutely in it for an hour, and then they fell apart. In uh, and Australia, credit to them, took full advantage and really went for the went went for the jugular. 
So I'm not sure about whether uh, Australia are going to clean up against uh, Argentina again in this in the second test, and I'm and I'm definitely not sure. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you, James. I'm not sure that they're going to take uh, take South Africa, even though it is on Aussie soil, and they do have a good uh, a good um, record against them there. So uh, and New Zealand. Who knows? Who knows what happens? I mean, if Scott Robertson's parachute, parachuted in, all of a sudden it could change the complexion of the thing quite a lot. Is that is that the first prediction in the history of predictions where no prediction has been made? <laughs> what, no, I was no, say. no prediction in terms of South Africa winning on Australia soil? <laughs> there was a lot of not sure, Nick. Can I get your one to four? Uh, yeah. Uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina. Okay, so we haven't quite got everyone putting New Zealand third, but a, a nice eclectic mix. So a couple of us might be right. A couple of us, of us will end up being way wrong. Right, let's wrap up there, guys. It's been a very, very enjoyable chat. We can look forward to the rest of the rugby championship. And James, good luck with everything in the automotive industry, in the family industry, and everything that comes with it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate the chat. Get yourself a copy of the Rugby Paper available in stores on Sundays or get it delivered to you through our digital subscription. We will see you next week for episode 27.